Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Unruffled ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. There's nothing like being totally engrossed in a good mystery or thriller. Audible has thousands of immersive audiobook titles to spark your imagination and get your heart thumping. Since it's summer, you might want to check out The Vacation Rental. Very well told and very unsettling. You won't want to turn it off. And since this is a parenting podcast, I should also mention that audiobooks are a wonderfully enriching experience for children because they aren't passive entertainment like other kids' media. They engage your child's imagination and can nurture both listening and language skills. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible for free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash unruffled or text unruffled to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. That's audible.com slash unruffled or text unruffled to 500-500 today. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected. After investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or tmobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Hi, this is Janet Lansbury, and welcome to Unruffled. Today, I'm very excited because I have some special guests, Dr. Megan Owens and her husband, Adam. Dr. Owens is a psychologist and an adjunct professor at Florida International University and Penn State University. She teaches classes on counseling and infant and child development. She writes and speaks about delaying screen time introduction. She and Adam run a website called ScreenFreeParenting.com, which provides current research on screens and a host of screen-free alternatives to keep kids engaged in learning. They are also the proud parents of two screen-free kids, aged one and four. So welcome, Megan and Adam. Oh, thank you so much for having us, Janet. Thanks for having us, Janet. I would love to know, first of all, what led to this focus on screen use and helping parents with their children's screen use? Oh, that's a big question. I think we, I often get pulled into doing things, teaching classes or writing, when I feel a strong urge because I'm either frustrated or angry about something. Um, and so I was rather frustrated with the overabundance of applications, programs, games, that are making a great deal of money off of the very young set, you know, zero to three, zero to five, that is in contrast to the research that shows that those things are not necessarily good for that age range. Um, and so I'm never going to be as flashy or as interesting as Netflix or Hulu or YouTube, but I wanted to provide a place for parents to access some research about young children and screens and also access some ideas, which are really, you know, the basics of um, what really helps young children achieve the things that parents are hoping they will. I, I, my general thesis is that the majority of reasons that parents of young children turn to screens, you know, if they want to help their child with language or attention, screens actually hinder those abilities. And so I just, 
I wanted a sort of counterculture voice to that. Well, that's a passion of mine as well. So can you talk about some of the specifics um, in the research? Sure. How long do you have? Um, (laughs) I, I like to talk about five general areas that screens are not helpful for. The first of which is sleep. We have meta-analyses of hundreds of studies that show screen time is associated with a later bedtime, less sleep, and more night wakings. Um, The second of which is obesity, which has a long-term relationship into adulthood with obesity. And then the ones that I get really passionate about um, are attention span, language abilities, and sort of children's emotional control and aggression. Those are the research studies that I think are really interesting in terms of, for example, each hour of screen time before three is associated with a 10% increase in attention and behavioral problems when the children are school-aged. Each hour of educational baby videos, DVDs, is associated with six to eight fewer words in those babies, even though the videos are designed to teach those words. So the research is really kind of clear for, for very young children that they don't learn a great deal from screens, even though that's often the parents hope, understandably so, because that's what's advertised to them. Do you think that's the main reason that parents use screens? Or do you think it's more about uh, wanting to occupy our children when we want to do other things and uh, take a break from parenting? Do you see more parents wanting to do it for educational reasons and for developmental reasons? Or do do you see that it's really more about, you know, babysitting or taking care of the child? I think that it's probably both, or, or there's a mix, or it depends on the, the individual parent's motivation. What I think is really interesting is the need that we feel as parents to entertain our children all the time, and how I believe that results in children being less capable of entertaining themselves later on. You know, So if every time I need to make dinner or I need to take a shower, for example, I turn to a screen because I can't have my attention on my my child at that time. I'm doing it because I, quote, need a break or I have to focus on something else. However, I'm making it less likely that my child's going to be able to independently play and entertain themselves later on. You know, this is a skill that children develop naturally over time, and they're able to play independently for increasingly long periods of time the older they get. But if you interrupt that by saying, I'm not going to pay attention to you, so here's an app or here's a program, you're not giving them any exposure to be able to deal with maybe the initial boredom or the initial frustration that might come up when they're not the center of your attention. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. You know, I work with parents that are having all those kinds of issues and it's so interesting and I guess ironic and really unfortunate for all of us parents that what we think is going to help actually makes our life and job harder and um, makes it harder for our children out there. Yes, we deserve breaks. We deserve to have children that can occupy themselves. Screens are are not the way to do that. I fiercely agree with you in that. And I'm wondering if, has there been any research about the other end of the spectrum? Because I've sort of done my own observational research with my own children and children that I've worked with. You know, maybe I think it might help parents more if we even focus on all the positives that happen when they do wait to introduce screens and they do introduce them very gradually and thoughtfully. Yeah. Is there any research about that? Because I'll share some of my own with three children that are very different children, but I would love to hear if there's research. 
you know, we don't, psychologists don't do pediatricians a lot of research on, or, or we haven't historically done a lot of research on when things are going well, right? You know, there's positive psychology, which is a new movement to try to do more research on those things. But the majority of the research is on the negative outcomes. And that's a shame because we know from a behavioral standpoint, we would do much better to tell parents things that they can do instead, right? You know, everybody would prefer to be told, hey, here's this great thing you can do versus here's this terrible thing and you need to stop doing it. We don't like to be told not to do things. Our children don't like it and we as an adults don't like it either. But no, I'm not familiar with research studies that look at children whose screen time introduction has been delayed and sort of the positive outcomes that, that might be associated with. Although Adam and I both feel that the benefits to our own two children are immense like you do for your two children. Yes. Yeah, I think so. You're already seeing that at age one and four. Yeah, right? it was it was for me really interesting because I was kind of skeptical of the whole you, you could call it an experiment <laughs> in the beginning. You know, I grew up watching television. I had a television in my room, and it was definitely when Megan said, "Let's try this," and you know, all the research shows that this is the right thing to do, even though you never hear about it in mainstream media. It really started to make an impression upon me when we when we saw like our daughter's attention span and her interest in stuff that I wouldn't consider someone of her age to be interested in or in her interest in books and, and just general life curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, that has been awesome. And, and it's kind of what kept us going because we started out shooting for the two year recommendation that the American Academy of Pediatrics shoots for. Um, with no screens before age two. And then it was like, wow, this is going so great. Let's keep it going. And then it was, she was about three when we started to think about maybe we should, maybe we should try to share this with the world because it seems like we could help some people and it's kind of interesting, but Mm -hmm. it's one of those things like everybody has one or two or three kids and and every child is different. So it's hard to know. Mm -hmm. You can't have like a control group where you put one kid in a closet with an iPad and you let one out to explore the world and see what happens later. Right. Um, I think that'd be really interesting. There's a lot of research I know that that's Megan, Megan's unturned that does show some positive outcomes from different things that people have done around screens, but I can't recall any of them offhand. Usually it's screen limiting. Yeah. So when, so when parents limit the screen time or when parents use screen time to, as a way to bond as a family, so participate in screen time activities together, like a family movie night, um, co-watching screens is much more beneficial than, you know, a child individually watching a screen. We do know sort of the research about these things that children do naturally, like being outside is associated with better sleep. It's associated with better mood. It's associated with increased attention. And so if screens are taking away from being outside and these positive outcomes are associated with being outside, it would make sense that children who spend less time on screens and more time outside would be doing better. You know, I also agree and appreciate with what you said about children developing this ability to entertain themselves and and learn through their play and use their play as self-therapy and, you know, a way to, I mean, learning all kinds of complicated things, higher learning skills, social skills, self-regulation. And one of the things that I work with parents on is how to nurture this from birth. I believe children, not only are they able to develop it, but they're actually born with this. And I see it as our job to protect that ability to come up with ideas to do things that interest you. And with an infant that might look like they're looking over here in this corner and let's not interrupt her. She's she's doing something um, that's meaningful to her right now. You know, in between all the times with infants when they're uncomfortable, you know, adapting to this new environment. And there are those moments in between. And if we can 
notice those and appreciate those and build on that. What I see with, in my children and the, all the children I work with, you know, an infant that's just a few months old can, quote, play for half an hour, 45 minutes, even an hour. Mm-hmm. It's definitely something they are able to do if we don't get in their way mm-hmm. and we don't get into entertaining them, which is what I was doing at first with my first child before I discovered Magda Gerber's approach. I thought that was my job. Keep her occupied, keep her busy. And that does lead directly to TV use, which, you know, luckily I stopped and kind of figured it all out before that, because unlike you, Adam, my experience with TV growing up was just, I never liked it. It always reminded me of being sick, you know, and yeah. that's when I would watch it and or Saturday morning cartoons and just it's all sunny and nice outside, you know, here in Southern California. And yeah, here we are in front of a TV and I just feel all dirty and icky, you know, so it wasn't um, in my aesthetic that I wanted to have that in, in my life. But I, I was definitely heading that direction with my oldest daughter because I thought that that's what I was supposed to do. So that is actually what got me into all my work that I'm doing now is I, I discovered that play was an inborn ability and that it was such a gift for parents, not only in terms of enjoying our child and learning about our child through observing them, but also because, yeah, you get to have perks in your day that you really enjoy watching your child and then you get to have time away from them because they don't depend on you for these things that they are able to do themselves. So just touching really briefly on my own observational anecdotal research with my children who are a lot older than yours, they're 23 and 19 and 14. You know, they're very different children and their capabilities for different subjects. And, you know, they're three very unique children. They all have an ability to absorb and retain what is taught to them or what they're learning they don't have to study very hard for tests. (laughs) They remember what they were exposed to. I believe that they absorb things in a deep way because they have not been sort of desensitized and used to tuning out a lot of the stimulation that's coming at them. And it does make for awkward moments, (laughs) you know, when they're more afraid of the character at Disneyland than, you know, at an older age than another child maybe, or, you know, that you can't send them to the birthday party where they're all watching a movie that, you know, might disturb your child. There are some awkward moments in the beginning, but what I always tell parents is sensitive is good. You know, sensitive will get your child (laughs) to college because they're able to learn there. They're able to take in the information besides having lots of ideas and problem-solving abilities and, you know, critical thinking. And so I, I can just say to you and to other parents, the long view on this is really, really good. And, you know, I, I just can't, I think it's really one of the best things I've done as a parent is to be careful about this, even though it was awkward at times, like I said, and got my kids mad at me and sure. different times. It was so worth it. And I think, well, I know my oldest daughters definitely are realizing how worth it it was. I don't know if my son who's 14 is yet, but probably not. But anyway, yeah, so it's a shame that we there can't be more of that kind of research that shows. The positive. You know, really, yeah, that just stay on this path, you know, to encourage parents. And it's not the popular path either. It's it's not what's, there's no marketing behind it. Right. You know, <laughs> there might be us posting something to Facebook, and then we're competing against millions of dollars of advertising revenue for children's shows and children's right. apps. And, and what's interesting, what I think is so interesting with very young children is that 
In the 1970s, the average age that a child started regularly utilizing a screen was about four and a half. And now in the early, I think it was like 2012 was the research study that was done that found that the average age of regular use of a screen was four months. So these babies Uh are not asking for the screen, right? Um, And so they're developing this sort of screen habit, so to speak, before they're even really aware of what a screen is. And that can be rather overstimulating. And there's a lot of brain development that is going on in your child, your little two-year-old's head, you know, in terms of their prefrontal cortex for attention and planning. And I, I thought of that when you talked about how your children study and how they seem to not, their attention, their focus, their impulse control, sustained attention on a topic and their, rec- their recall for that seem to be better to you. And this is a huge uncontrolled social experiment that we all subject children to screens before they know what they are and what they're, what they're asking for. It would make sense that that would have some impact on brain development and sort of how they see the rest of the world if they're seeing the world through a screen first, right? Yeah. And, and one thing too is like, for me, it's the biggest piece is the displacement piece because research shows that like under age three, the average TV time per day is 5.5 hours in the U S and like, I think it's four under five, 4.5 hours. 4.5 hours. So when you're thinking about how much sleep a child under three is getting, Mm -hmm. how much awake time they actually have, and you're going to spend, let's say it's even just a third of it on a screen their brains aren't made to to develop that way. And they're missing out on something by doing that for them. So, I mean, there's the displacement piece, but there's also the attention span, all that. Mm-hmm. It's like, there's no downside to not doing it. Right, right. So. And, you know, Janet, you mentioned something else in terms of your children's fear a little bit later. And I think that's such an important piece because while they may not have a cognitively sophisticated way of expressing it, young children are scared of the things that they they see on screens. And, and some research shows that even when there's supposed to be a pro-social message. So I'll show a little bit of my bias here and talk about a Disney movie, for example. So theoretically in Beauty and the Beast, there's supposed to be a pro-social message. What it is, is even difficult for adults to ascertain, right? But, you know, maybe it's not judging people by their appearance or not being a misogynist. Um, <laughs> but when children watch something with a pro-social message that still has conflict, they're more likely to exhibit negative behaviors afterwards. And the reason why people think that is the case is that they don't understand the difference between fantasy and reality. And from a very basic function, children need to pay attention to the things that are threatening to them. So when there's violence or there's conflict, they pay attention to that and that's what they remember. Sesame Street, there was an example um, where there was a conflict over sharing. The children remembered that there was a conflict over sharing, but they didn't remember what the resolution was. These are real characters to them. This is real conflict, real violence that's happening. And their brain is telling them, you know, this is a bit of a threat and we need to pay attention to this. And so protecting your children from that for an extended period of time, delaying that until they can, they totally understand that this is fantasy and they have sort of their family values set before they start looking at those things, I think makes a lot of sense. I think another reason that they they act on those the the violence that they see or are are more affected by that is that children have such a 
a wonderful deep need to understand uh, their environment, understand the objects. The, you know, that's why Magda Gerber always encouraged really basic toys, not toys that you push a button and it does a bunch of things because that, that kind of discourages children from this wonderful curiosity that they have to like figure everything out and master it. So I believe, or I'm guessing, that might be part of the reason children, you know, will act out of the violent part. It's like they they need to process that. They need to understand why do people do this? You know, where right. is this coming from? What does it feel like? What does that person feel like? You know, it's all this wonderful learning ability that they have, but it's needing to be, you know, used to try to sort through something that they're, they can't really understand yet. You know, you'll see children, maybe they're out on the street with their parents and they see somebody yelling at somebody or, or something that goes on and you'll see them needing to talk that out again and again with their parents. You know, even right. if they barely have the words, they want to keep asking about it and they just need to, it's like, I, I'm trying to work through this. I'm trying to figure this out and can imagine when they see things that are really, you know, so inappropriate on screen and just the speed of it all and the amount of it and, you know, the overwhelming nature of all of it. It's not real life. And that's why things like Mr. Rogers, if you're going to watch something when you're very young, I mean, at least it's on a, it's a real life pace, you know, that children can. Uh, Researchers actually talk about Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers isn't associated with the negative impacts of, of sort of attention and aggression that we've touched on a little bit so far. Um, and researchers talk about Mr. Rogers as actually being like slow motion inventor of reality, right? Because he walks into a restaurant very casually and slowly and he explains what the silverware is and there's not conflict and so there's the opportunity for children to actually understand what's happening and for the children to get bored with the screen and move on and do something else it's not shifting and changing the screen is not shifting and changing so quickly that they're overstimulated by it and can't possibly pull themselves away from it Right. They're so drawn in. I mean, I noticed that I wrote about it in one of my posts, but I, I noticed that how drawn in I am. I mean, I don't watch TV. You know, mm -hmm. It was pathetic last night because I was trying to watch the debate and I, <laughs> I don't even know how to turn our TV on. There's like three different, you know, um, things that I have to push. And anyway, I know I'm strange. But good company here. <laughs> it's so much like our modern processed food. It's like there's so much technology that goes into the products that we consume, both food and media. You know, Mr. Rogers was probably produced and put out there without any testing, whereas all the shows that and things that are being tested, like a Netflix show, for example, those are addicting because they've been scientifically engineered to be addicting media. Right. And the same thing's done for our kids and our kids are completely helpless to it. Like if we're watching a show, we watch TV every, every once in a while after the kids go to bed. And it's like I don't even want to start a series because I know it's been engineered for me to want to keep watching and I don't mm -hmm. want to get pulled in mm -hmm. and and I can try and make that conscious decision but poor kids can't yeah and what the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with another recent statement it was about violence in media um, and they said that children under eight shouldn't see any violent media and that includes violence or conflict that's presented in a comedic fashion for example in a cartoon and I think parents think yes of course I'm going to turn off the news around my young child but not realizing that violence in a Disney movie or violence on a cartoon or, or a program like that has a really big impact on children. And like you talked about, they, they feel the need to rehearse that. And that's why if a child watches a feature length film, they play quote unquote, that film, they rehearse that film for a very, very long period of time, right? They're trying to figure out what is happening. 
And that play is not quite as elaborate or involving the executive functioning in their brain as when they have to create their own roles and their own rules and their own little world, right? I mean, that's a totally different way of engaging your brain than versus I saw this and it was it was kind of overwhelming and I didn't really understand it. So I'm just going to keep playing it until I can make some sense of it with a variety of playmates and by myself and with my parents and try to understand what it was that went on. Right. I have to master this instead of mastering building a tower. Right. Or, or, uh... Yeah. Magda was so right. Um, I'd be so interested to hear what she would say about television. I mean, research confirms what she says about toys, that the best toys are like 90% kid, 10% toy. Um, and when there's electronic toys that kids play with it in a much more restricted fashion because they feel the need to play with it the way the toy is designed and they can't apply their own thoughts or processes or skills or whatever it is that they're working on that's important to them in that moment. Yes. I mean, she recommended uh, not introducing any kind of movie or anything till school age, meaning, you know, I guess kindergarten age. And then, yeah, being very careful, knowing that especially if we've raised them to be sensitive and aware of their environment and, and tuned in, that they're going to be tuned in to whatever we show them and right. to be careful around that. So this is all great. <laughs> I feel like I could talk about this subject all day. I've always been fascinated by Jane Healy's books. Yeah. A few books I just really couldn't put down was her book, Endangered Minds, and, and I relate to it so much. But this is a conversation I want to keep having. So maybe you'll come on again. Yeah. I mean, we have a whole, we talk about two things, which is, you know, one is all the things that the negative things about screens, right? And then what I'm attempting to do is to have a more positive spin on it, which is all of the positive things that are good for child development that parents or children can naturally do. We talk about it as the spoil system. So social activities, play, outdoor activities, independent quote-unquote work or tasks that children feel very accomplished and drawn to, and literacy. So those are sort of the two things that we tend to write about and try, try to contrast that these things that you naturally see your child drawn to and that you're naturally drawn to as a parent are far superior to these engineered screens that you're hoping will help those things. And I think that's really why I pushed Megan to really do the the website was because there really was no place for all of the facts. And some of the facts just never hits mainstream media. There's some really interesting studies out there that show some pretty scary stuff that just gets swept aside by the slipstream of content that's constantly coming out. So we wanted to create a place where people could go to get that information, mm -hmm. but then also get tactics and ideas for, for keeping their, you know, their kids on track. Yeah, so we offer five activities every week, and they're very basic activities like make a ladybug habitat and watch how the ladybug plays on the leaves and, you know, go for a child-directed walk, that sort of thing. So anybody And it's literally just stuff we did that week. So, yeah, we would love to talk with you more about any of these things at, at any time. This is it's, it's really fun to connect around these issues. Well, you have a new subscriber here, screenfreeparenting.com. Everybody check it out. Uh, I, I noticed also that you recommend certain um, books on tape or listening tapes, which is something that I also recommend for those down times when children don't have as much energy to create their own play uh, late in the afternoon. I would go to that before using a screen. Absolutely. There's dial a story. There's books on CD. There's times I just encourage parents to set it up in a fashion that's not on a screen that the child isn't pulled to be 
clicking and pushing. I mean, we use old school CDs or, or tape and, and our daughter just loves that. Oh my God. And, and the library, I feel like we have like frequent flyer miles there. I call and we're on a, like a first name basis with the librarians because we're always renewing like the 30 books that we checked right, out that week and right. audio books for the kids. And my daughter has a CD boom box in her room and we gave her kind of all of our appropriate CDs that used to be ours when we were younger and she loves those. And then she's always putting in different CDs, CD stories and things. And it's right. kind of cool because she can't fall down the rabbit hole with, you know, like an iPod or something like that where it could do so much more. Yeah. It's like she's safe in there. I know she's got Curious George and, <laughs> you know, a bunch of other stories that, you know, are totally safe for her and age appropriate. And she just loves it. In fact, she doesn't nap now because she's. Uh oh! <laughs> I was going to say she's not waking up in the night turning on. No, no. she's actually pretty good about that because. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, she's aged out of naps, but it's it's a wonderful time for her to have sort of a little rest period. Um, that that definitely does seem to rejuvenate her. Yeah. Yes, and even those I've noticed are more. You know, it's like one step more um, intense for children than reading. Mm-hmm to hear it on tape. I feel like they have a little less control over that or something. And so it's like a little bit more, um, you know, if there's something sort of dramatic in that story, it affects them more than if we read it to them in a book. So I don't know. It's just really so true because she has, we kind of just follow her lead with everything, um, but with books as well. And I read to her the first Harry Potter. Now, naturally as a parent, you kind of do a little editing when you're reading. And so I, I probably did that without even noticing it at parts that I wanted to edit a little bit. And then they had Harry Potter on CD, and she really wanted that from the library. And I said, okay, we'll pick that up. You can listen to it, you know, in the car or, or at a variety of times. Well, we all agreed that after, you know, the first 30 minutes or so that she listened to that she really couldn't because she got scared by it. And so listening to it, my voice at my pace where we could stop and talk about things versus hearing it is, is more overwhelming for a young child. And, and certainly you add the screen element to it, it's significantly more overwhelming to try to make sense of those pictures. So yeah, I totally agree with you that the audio can be more intense at times. Do the studies you've looked at also agree with Jane Healy in that the screen actually causes children to mostly focus on the visuals and not even really listen? So actually sort of decreases their ability to listen because they get used to the seeing, the visuals take over. Absolutely. And we, and we know, for example, there's a research study on Clifford, the big red dog. There's like a 10-minute episode about involving others and accepting people with disabilities, and it focused on a three-legged dog. Um, and the kids were initially kind of excluding this dog and mean to this dog and scared they were going to get sick from this dog. And then at the end, they all became friends, and it was this message of inclusion. Well, they showed it to five-year-olds, which is, you know, an older, young child that we're talking about young children. And the children demonstrated more likely to have negative attitudes towards somebody with a disability after watching the show than wow. before watching the show, because so much of it, like they're watching the visuals. And so nine minutes of visuals showed children backing away from the dog, having a fearful response. And children are going to pay a lot of attention to that fearful response that cues our brain that something's you know really salient. And so the last minute where they talked about inclusion, you know, can't make up for that nine minute of visuals of exclusion and fear, right? Thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge and your studies and sharing this passion with me that you you have for this work. And I hope this podcast has been helpful to listeners. Thank you once again, Megan and Adam, for joining me today. And 
can get more information on screens at their website, screenfreeparenting.com. Also, please check out some of my other podcasts and both of my books, which uh, don't specifically talk about screens, but they present a screen-free approach to parenting, Elevating Child Care and No Bad Kids. They're available on Amazon.com and in Audible and in ebook, Barnes & Noble and Apple.com. So thank you so much for listening. We can do this. If you like Unruffled, you can listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.